He is ready. He's ready for anything. The man likes a fast car, some aviators. He's ready to go to Ukraine. <laughs> it's true. He does. We are not sending the president to Ukraine. What I will tell you is that what Boris Johnson did is he took, I believe, an eight-hour train through a war zone to get to the middle of Ukraine. So, no, that is not in the plans for the president of the United States. We should all be maybe relieved about that. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, in Seattle, Washington, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today I'm back. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show. I'm based at NicoleSandler.com. And today, sharing some of my stuff with you, the broadcast listener. So when Brad and Desi asked if I could fill in today, I thought, well, I'm kind of swamped myself. But I did a show earlier this week with two amazing guests that I'd love to share with you. So coming up later in the hour, we're going to learn about privacy We'll speak with Amy Gaida, who released a brand new book just out this week called Seek and Find, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy, and it's fascinating. And in just a few minutes, I'll share with you a conversation I had with somebody that I told you about last month, Tanya. I explained how when there's something going on around the world, I like to call just to talk to a human being. And I told you of my call to the Forever Friends Hostel in Kiev where I met a woman named Tanya. And we have stayed in touch over these past six weeks. And we actually spoke the other day. For the first time since that initial call, two days after the war started. She gives us an insight into what people over there are feeling that you really can't get any other way. So that's all coming up. But as usual, we'll start with a little bit of news. I don't know about you, but when I heard about this first story, all I could think of was that old commercial from is it the late 60s or early 70s, maybe? You sank my battleship. And it wasn't just any battleship. It was the Moskva, the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, and one of their most visible assets in the Ukraine war. 
It's currently unclear exactly what caused the sinking, but conflicting reports have emerged. There's been some dispute as to how it actually sunk. The Russians said it was a fire, a fire that broke out in the ammunition store that set off a, an explosion. The Ukrainians have said that they fired a couple of anti-ship missiles at the ship. What U.S. officials are now saying is that they believe that account, the Ukrainian account, that they destroyed the ship is credible, although a definitive answer has not been reached yet here in the U.S. Yeah, I'll go with the Ukrainians. Unfortunately, this comes as Russia is training additional units and gathering aviation forces in an effort to ramp up for fresh attacks in Ukraine's south and east, concentrating their new efforts on the Donbass region. And there are worries that Putin will retaliate for the sinking of the Moskva. In fact, Russia's defense ministry warned that Moscow would intensify its missile attacks on Kyiv, even after they pulled out of that city. And in fact, the Kyiv area was hit Friday by some of the most powerful explosions heard there in over two weeks. And Russia said it had targeted a Ukrainian missile plant. A renewed bombardment of the capital city itself could return residents to a heightened state of caution. Russia said the symbolically important ship sank because of a fire. If that's the case, why are they retaliating? Hmm. And then there's NATO. Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chair of Russia's Security Council and a close ally of Putin's, said Thursday that if Finland and Sweden join NATO, Moscow might deploy nuclear weapons and hypersonic missiles closer to Europe. Finland, which shares an 810-mile border with Russia, and Sweden both began considering applying for membership in NATO after Russia invaded Ukraine. Finland's prime minister said the country would decide within weeks. Medvedev said if the two Nordic countries join NATO, there can be no more talk of a, quote, nuclear-free Baltic. And as President Biden approves another $800 million weapons package for Ukraine, Russia this week sent a formal diplomatic note to the U.S. warning that U.S. and NATO shipments of the, quote, most sensitive weapon systems to Ukraine were, quote, adding fuel to the conflict and could bring what they call unpredictable consequences. <sighs> well, if you can somehow put that out of your mind for a moment, welcome to a holiday weekend. Friday is Good Friday. Passover begins Friday night at sundown. Sunday is Easter. And, oh yeah, your 2021 income taxes are due on Monday. In a disturbing trend from Republican-controlled states as we await a decision from the Supreme Court on the fate of women's right to choose in this country, two more states have now passed sweeping abortion restrictions. In Kentucky, the Republican-led legislature overrode a veto from Democratic Governor Andy Bashir and passed abortion restrictions that advocates say will essentially cripple the state's last two standing clinics. That law takes effect immediately. Now, here in Florida, the heinous governor blatantly lied when he signed into law another near-total ban on abortion after 15 weeks, with no exception for rape, incest, or human trafficking. But listen to the way this man lies. The far left of our political spectrum, they are now taking the position that babies can be aborted up to the ninth month. Literally, you can go back for you parents and some of the most uh, uh, significant experiences in my life to hold your child for the very first time. What they would say is, parent holding that child, if you just go back a day or two, 
then you would have been able to snuff the child out entirely? That is just fundamentally wrong. No, that is just fundamentally a lie. It's nonsense. It's just simply not true. None of it. And the lemmings standing around him at that event are just nodding in agreement. Well, more details are surfacing about yet another police killing of an unarmed black man. This time it's in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where an officer shot 26-year-old Patrick Lyoya in the head during a traffic stop on April 4th. Video footage of the incident was just released on Wednesday. Lyoya's father said, My son has been killed like an animal. Peter Lyoya brought his six children from Congo in 2014 to escape the violence there. Now the Associated Press is reporting that he fears he brought them here to the United States to die. A federal jury on Thursday convicted an Ohio man who claimed he was just following presidential orders of then, you know, the former guy, when he participated in the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. The jury took less than three hours to find Dustin Byron Thompson, 38 years old, guilty of obstructing Congress as it certified President Biden's 2020 electoral victory over Trump. The jury also found Thompson guilty on five other charges, including stealing a coat rack from a Capitol office. He could be sentenced up to 20 years on the obstruction charge, a felony. District Judge Reggie Walton said, quote, our country is being torn apart by charlatans who care only about power. That one's for you, Donald. And finally, Vice President Kamala Harris and second gentleman Doug Emhoff on Friday night become the first known second family to host a Passover Seder at the vice president's residence. Second gentleman Doug Emhoff is Jewish, and Friday night marks the first night of Passover. By the way, Saturday, April 16th, is also the first day of National Park Week, and there's free admission to all national parks that day to celebrate. Find the national parks near you at nps.gov. Okay, a quick time out and back on the other side with a new friend from Ukraine who is currently far away from home and from her husband. We'll meet Tanya on the other side. Don't go away. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show. I'm based at NicoleSandler.com. I invite you to come over anytime and check out what I do. There's lots there to keep you uh, entertained for a while. So I was here uh, about a month ago filling in for Brad and Desi, and I told you the story of my friendship with Tanya. Tanya lives in Kiev with her husband. They own a hostel in the middle of Kiev. It's called Friends Forever. So 
when there's something going on in different parts of the world, I like to call to cut through the usual news channels and talk to just a regular person, a citizen. And I often call hotels because you're more likely to find somebody who speaks English at a hotel. So I called this hostel. It was the second day of the war. And Tanya answered. She was in the basement of the hostel. That's where they were staying for a few days while bombs were falling on Kiev. She happened to just go up into the stairwell to check some messages because she had no signal down below when we spoke. And we decided we would stay in touch and communicate through the Telegram app, which we have done pretty much every day since then. But we hadn't spoken. So Tanya and her husband left Kiev. They wound up going to a small village. They were there for a while. Then the shelling started there. So they moved to another place. And they were joined by friends of Tanya's and their little boy, who happens to be Tanya's godson. So the men who, by the way, are not allowed to leave. Men between the ages of 18 and 60 can't leave the country because they need them to fight the Russians. But the men finally convinced Tanya and her friend to take the little boy and go to Poland, which they did. And all the while, we've been communicating on the Telegram app. I'm making a long story short. I told you the whole thing last month. If you want a reference, you can go back and listen to the broadcast from March 18th. That was the show I did with Ellie Mastal. And when I first told you Tanya's story. So just to make a long story short, Tanya's sister lives in Dubai. And she said, you guys need to come here. So she sent them three plane tickets. And Tanya, her friend, and her godson, three-year-old Mark, are now in Dubai. And she's been going through a rough time. To be honest, she's been depressed, as one would expect. But we finally made a date to talk. We decided we'd do it over Zoom so we could also see each other. And now I'm going to share that conversation with you. Hello. Hello. Oh, my goodness. It's finally working. Um, it's so nice to see you. Hi. It's not easy work. Yes, it's not easy work. I'm so wow. sorry. Oh, don't apologize. Um, I'm glad we're able to connect and finally, finally speak. You know, the only time we've talked yeah. is when I first called yeah. um, your hostel. Yeah. It seems yeah. like forever yeah. ago. Yes, my darling. Uh, actually, I want to start to speak with the words, hello, my big mom, bear, but, <laughs> you know, Zoom doesn't want to listen to me. So, so yes, the first hour talk, it was be where I stay underground, yes? Yes. Uh, and mobile uh, doesn't work well, so I ask you, text me a message uh, and wait a few days. And after we speak, start to talk, I think every day, yeah, yeah, pretty much because yeah. very much sometimes I'm cannot remember what happened this time because my brain sometimes is blocked, I think, really, sometimes I understand what what is day today, oh, what happened yesterday, I sometimes cannot remember, but it's normal, it's life, it's my life, uh, and um. My past life, it was be so wonderful. Yes, of course, I want to return and I want to everything stay like before. Yeah. Uh, like, it, yeah. It, it's like, but, 
before the bombs started and after. Um, so your husband yes. is still obviously in Ukraine and you were yes, you were yes. at a village. He went back to Kiev. He went back to the hostel, to your home. Yes, he will go. just a few minutes before he sends me a message. What he come back? Uh, what he come to hostel and check everything because we have just one man, who big man. He lives maybe one and a half year in hostel. He know everything. And uh, the first day of the war, I just call him and say, Yura, please take care about hostel because I don't know where we're staying. Stay there, please. You can open door for every people who have trouble, for everybody. If people can something pay, it will be great. We have money for pay, like about power, about water. If people doesn't have it, you cannot take it. But you can imagine uh, a lot of people who come and sometimes ask, how much is it? And he say, if you can leave something, welcome. And people pay. People oh. won't pay. Oh, I cry wonderful. all the time. And also I cry because sometimes people come from different country and want to help. Sometimes it's volunteers who have money for each day for living. Uh, sometimes people who just moving. Oh, it's terrible situation. I say, please come back with money for people. People leave. Uh, in, Oh, my God, for good city. Oh, Chernigiv. Uh-huh. After a terrible time about Chernigiv, people come in, family. I uh, ask her, where you go? And people say, we don't know, we must check because in Lviv, it's really high price about uh, rent. And I say, please, you stop here and just imagine how many days, how many weeks, how many months you can stay. People cry and say, I'm so sorry, mm. we stayed just two weeks. It's possible. I say, yes, yes, please. And people after leave and go to Poland. Yes. yes because our hostel in center, I know, sometimes it's scary because a different place in Kiev, uh, different situations. But center, you know, because close, a few kilometers from there, safe president, and uh, it double uh, scared. <laughs> right. So, so, did your husband tell you how things are there now? Has it quieted down in Kiev? Yes, um, in Kiev it's quiet right now. But you know, about nobody cannot say what time. Yeah. And, uh, and because and- sometimes, not sometimes, every day. Every morning I wake up, I take my phone, I have uh, maybe 10, not 10, 12, maybe 16 different uh, messenger with news. And I um, check everything what I have. And I find uh, about, uh, which, what is a rate? Yes, a rate. And I just check it, Kiev. Oh, I must quickly call to my husband and uh, I must check what he okay because uh, you understand what's so dangerous. You don't know nothing. Actually, um, one week before, I think it is Friday. Yes, it's Friday. My husband called me and say what he he just come back in Kiev and after one evening he go to France. 
And they're uh, coming in big house, like uh, seven men. Every man uh, leave family uh, or in um, Lviv or uh, family go to Poland or Germany. And men come back to Kiev. Different day, different uh, situations of about family. But everybody come back to mm-hmm. Kiev. And uh, every, every man want to meet uh, and uh, have a dinner and talk about what happened with somebody. And there coming one man. Oh, he explained terrible situation. He uh, have really terrible situation, and he have uh, gun on the head and a lot. Yes, yes. Oh my! And this and this man explained about Bucha. He was saying Bucha, oh, and uh, he say about two hundred fifty die person in one place. So it's the one uh, big place where all the people die, and Russian military put everybody in one place. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So he ex- explained the situation, and um, it, it's terrible. But it's just news about my husband. And uh, you can imagine after four days, I see this message in news. So people know a lot. And um, in newspaper, it's coming after a few days. Right, so right. it's uh, all the time like that. Yeah, the, I, I know how we're reacting to the news. And it's horrible. You mentioned Bucha. And we're hearing what's going on in Mariupol as well. And it's just it's yes, just awful. But you know, about Mariupol, uh, nobody don't know what happened. No, because, because you can't get in there. Few information, and we know about uh, what uh, Russian military take a lot of Russian people, and to make um, how to say uh, when take people put in the bus and uh, you must go to the Russian. You have just one way. So it's thousands, thousands people, thousands, thousands yes. people. We cannot imagine what happened there because uh, my friends have. You military, Ukrainian military, who stays there. It's a nice guy, young guy, who doesn't afraid nothing because Ukraine, Ukraine must be. And this man say terrible situation, really. So I don't want to read all newspaper because right. I have a lot news about our friends. And Ukraine not too big. Yes, it's a big country, but it's not too big. I have a thousand friends from different, different cities, you know. I have my family who live with four different cities, wow. four different situations. Yes, all my family, my uh, cuisine, my uh, brother. And uh, brother, it's why? Because he uh, um, a chef cook in the boat. I don't know how to say, uh, but... He just come back to, he want to come back to Ukraine, but uh, in March, yes. But her family was, say, in uh, Poland this time, Uh so he go to Poland, yes. So half of my family is, say, right now in Poland. uh, My uh, uncle, say, in Kherson, their occupation territory. Okay. There, she just uh, doesn't. She cannot use money, electronic money. Oh, I cannot okay. sell to her money. She can take one kilo of salt and go to people who live there near, and change to fish, 
to Oh, wow. So you're trading, they're bartering, but yeah. not using cash, not using money. Yeah, nothing, nothing, never, never. N anywhere, anywhere cannot use. So just after a few days, uh, Russian uh, military cut TV, Ukraine, yeah. just Russian TV. About mobile, the same. Because people want to wake up and make something. And you know, doesn't have news everywhere, the yeah. same. So, yeah. so situation like that, it's my family. Yes. Oh, it's my history. That's, it's heartbreaking. Now, you're in Dubai with your sister. How long has your sister lived yeah. in Dubai? Three years. Three years. Three years. So yes. it's got to be tough for you because you're leaving your home. You had to leave your husband behind because men aren't allowed to leave um, right now. Mm -hmm. um, but it's you and your friend and your godson, Mark. How's he, how's he holding yeah. up? How's the little boy holding up? He's he really nice. He's really nice. But sometimes he wake up in the morning early and say, Mama, 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 why it's work city? And uh, here uh, have like built, you know, like oh, well. that. Uh -huh. And... Uh, all the time, voice different, like beep, 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 something like that. And he afraid Syrian. Oh. He afraid Syrian, and he all the time, Mama, Mama, I won't come back to Kiev, uh, where it doesn't have sea. It doesn't have what? You no, know, we're crying. Sea. Sea, beach. Sea. Oh, a beach, sea. the sea. Uh, Dubai yeah, is sea, not on sea. the, I thought yeah. Dubai is right on the ocean. Yeah, yeah, huh? yeah. No, no, no. He asked Mama, when we come back to Kiev, where it doesn't have tea. Oh, it doesn't he have doesn't there. Want, he doesn't, doesn't have, doesn't have tea. I see. He doesn't want tea, he won't Kiev. Because Aww. he, yes. And we look at about this and we start to cry because a child, he wants um, normal life. And for him, you can imagine. We and the line went dead. But after about 20 minutes or so, we were able to reconnect and finish the conversation. Again, we're talking to Tanya, who's from Kiev, who is now a refugee. She's in Dubai with her sister and her friend and her friend's little boy, Mark, her godson. Uh, I have a few minutes more with you, and um, I want to say thank you, everybody, everybody. All the world, never, never, I don't forget it. Well, you have a lot of people, a lot of people out here who really care, who yes. care about what's happening to your country and care about you personally. Yes. I, I cannot believe what I see it every day. People, every country, every country, it's like a big, big family. It's my dream, you know. I all the time feel what I'm child of the world and I hug and I love every people in the world, but... I cannot, never, never, I cannot imagine what is possible. So many people, the thousands of thousands of people help right now. My country, wake up. We thank you. Everybody, thank you. Well, and we wish we could do more. There's a lot of argument over here about what we should be doing. And of course, the fear of poking the monster and him letting loose with nukes, which is inconceivable, but... We just want the killing to stop. Our hearts go out to you. So we're here. And anything we can do to help, we want to help. 
my darling, thank you very much. But right now, about me and about my friend Carrie, my sister. So she like big papa and we two mama who wait at home and cook and try to do better, something think better at home. I'm safe. My yes. friend safe. My family who stay in Ukraine and my husband, I hope safe. But thousands, thousands of people in Ukraine need help. And I, every morning I wake up and I say, God, please tell me what I can do, something good for people, for help. If I can do something, if somebody wants to propose me some help, because I know a lot of volunteers in Kiev, my friend, who work in Kosovo also, you know, one girl, she... I asked, maybe you want to leave for Ukraine? She said, no, I have three cats. I must stay because with three cats it's not possible to travel. So she at Kiev, maybe she can help a lot of people there. Maybe some people who listen to me have some idea, maybe want to do something, but don't know who can help. I have person, really my friend. So Okay, well... We'll maybe, stay in touch. Maybe. I hate that this is what brought us together, but I'm I'm so glad to have met you and uh, to have you as a friend. Yeah. And one of these days, as we say, one of these days we will meet in person. I don't know when. And yeah. hopefully, Thank you. hopefully we can all go back to Ukraine and help rebuild because it's going to need I a lot of help. Because it's the best country in the world. Really. I so love Kiev. I'm not from Kiev. I'm from a small city, but more than 18 years before I just come in Kiev and I love, I full in love I say, oh my god I want to stay here, I want to live here Dubai is very nice but it's not my home right. so can I ask you just uh, yes. I want to, just want to ask what made you decide to buy this hostel, to run a hostel in the middle of Kiev, is, is that the business you were in or what, what prompted that you know, at first, it's Asia make with me uh, one love about person, about personality, about all the world people. And uh, when we, we, it's another one time we are calling and I explain, really, we have big, big travel when the, me and my husband lose everything and we want to just uh, buy ticket one way to Asia. And there we are meet wonderful place with name, friends forever. It uh, would be a small restaurant in the beach. Mm. And there we understand what we want to open something like that. Because uh, man, he was the owner. And he, uh, uh, <laughs> he worked in this restaurant like cooker, like uh, cleaner, like everything together. And he make love and uh, be all the time open heart for people, you know? Mm-hmm. He uh, all the time say, how are you doing? What, I can help, maybe you need something. Not about restaurant, not about cafe. I look at him and understand what, it's something crazy. I won't be like him. And when I come back to Kiev after uh, one year, we decide to open hostel and uh, be in love with all people who come in. And it's true. Everybody, you can call to 
any person who uh, who stay in hostel, I have thousand thousand number of phone people because thousand people text message me the first day of the war. Oh, wow. Say Tanya, 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 please say what you say. So we decide open the place where people feel love in one hundred That's wonderful. Like I w- I want to come visit. <laughs> Um, when when all yes, this is over, please, I want to come stay welcome. there. Yes, I meet you in airport. I hope airport <laughs> open. I meet you in airport traditional with bread and with uh, some Ukrainian <laughs> bread. I will buy it, you know, in one time. So I will I will hope I see you and I hug you, my darling. Thank yes. you, thank you a lot for everything what you do for. Every call. I'm so sorry about I doesn't answer sometimes oh, because uh, my psychology situation is sometimes different, every day different. And as I told you, I, the last thing I want to do is put any pressure on you. Or I just want to to make sure you know that there are people out here who really care. And we've become friends over the last six weeks. I mean, yes, I, yes. I, I really doesn't, care. Doesn't think something, please, please, doesn't think something. Sometimes just say, I drink a lot of pills, you know, for my heart doesn't cry like that. Right. So oh. sometimes I'm... But um, I hope everything be soon very, very nice. I hope I so, hope too. And I kiss everybody, and uh, I want to give all my love to every people who stay right now here and interesting what happened in my country. I hope it's, it's the first time we're calling, but not live. Most definitely. I know you're worried. We are too. And let's just, you know, collective thought and prayer and whatever we can send out to the universe to bring peace and make them stop. So we're here with you. Tanya, it's so great to finally talk to you. And we will talk again. I'll be messaging you. Sending lots of love. Okay. Okay. With big love. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you were able to understand most of what she said. But even if you miss some of the words, you can certainly feel the emotion coming through. It's important to remember that every one of those people in Ukraine is a human being and they're being bombed and killed. I like to put a human spin on things. So people are people and not just numbers. All right. One more quick time out. We're going to come back on the other side and talk about our right to privacy. It's probably not what you think it is. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Every breath you take Ah, we kick off the third and final segment of today's episode of the broadcast with a, one of the creepiest songs. It's like a stalker song, right? 
Who's listening in on your conversations? What kind of right to privacy do you have? That's what we get into next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today for the broadcast, speaking with Amy Gaija. You wrote this book, Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. And this is a very sticky area. I guess we do have a right to privacy. The Fourth Amendment and the Constitution basically says that without so much saying it, right? Yeah, um, the the book is is really about uh, the right to privacy in the situation where someone reveals another's secrets. So, for example, if your previous guest had not agreed to be on uh-huh. uh, and um, and you had revealed certain things about her, uh, whether or not the law could come in and, in effect, punish you for revealing truth. And so there are parallels within all these other constitutional um, ideas, certainly within um within liberty, um, the right to be let alone in in different areas, uh, including searches and seizures um, by police. My area of interest is is very much in uh, the times that law can punish the truthful revelation of information. Okay. And you come at this before you became a law professor, you were a journalist. So you come from that world. Was it from practicing journalism that you said, wait a minute, I want to I want to explore the law behind all of this? Or how did that segue happen? Well, what, what really happened is back when I worked in journalism, I knew an awful lot about defamation. So we learned an awful lot about defamation. Uh, then when um, I, I became a lawyer, I practiced law and then I became a law professor and started reading up more on media law issues, having been a former journalist and recognize that there is this area of law called privacy, um, specifically something called um, the publication of private facts. Uh, And it's something I had never heard about um, working as a journalist. I always thought if I reported truth that I would be protected. Uh, And and as it turns out, uh, that is not correct. uh, And it's not been correct from the very beginning of the United States. So I guess in that way, just sort of looking back on the sorts of things that um, that I struggled with as a journalist uh, reporting, I I found it very interesting that the law uh, actually has that same sort of struggle between between um, the right to privacy, the right to be let alone and freedom of the press, you know, the ability to publish truth. Right. And then there are some things that it's just nobody else's business. If it's your private life, it's nobody's business. And I can actually talk about one instance. And look, politically, I, um, I'm about as far removed from Lindsey Graham as one can be. And it's a, it's a well-known secret around not only Washington, D.C., but everywhere. You know, Lindsey Graham is, he's never been married. There's been questions about his personal life. It's well known among certain circles that he's a gay man. And people have tried to out him And yet there's this like wall. Um, And I guess it's because one, it's nobody's business. I think it's our business when if you are a public figure like a politician and you're a closeted homosexual, but you actively work against gay rights, then there's then there's some wiggle room there. But this is that part of the law that you can't. Am I am I on to something here or you can? Well, 
so so I can't speak directly to that because I I don't know. Right. Uh, but um, but I can tell you that uh, that you're exactly right, that that's precisely what that where the tension is. And very often journalism ethics are um, are far more protective of individuals than the law would be. Uh, and so there, for example, uh, at least the way the law stands now, if someone wanted to report uh, that uh, a politician was gay and had voted against gay rights, mm-hmm. uh, that would absolutely be protected in law because that's information that is considered newsworthy. One of the interesting things now is that um, because courts have been uh, so um, uh, they've really um, moved forward and uh, found uh, journalists liable for reporting truthful things. um, And they've also um, uh, decided that journalists can be uh, more responsible for defamatory speech. I think that those sorts of cases may cause some journalists to uh, to decide not to report things. Right. You know, why face a lawsuit? Why face a lawsuit for defamation? Why face a lawsuit for invasion of privacy if courts are, in fact, um, uh, punishing uh, people who report uh, that sort of truthful information? Right. But but here's the question. And this is always the question, especially when it comes to the law. You're dealing with the different judges and the different areas in the country where attitudes may be different. And so what may apply to one person, a defamation lawsuit, um, may not to another in another part of the country with a different judge. So there's no standard there. That's right. I mean, there there is there's a basis for making decisions. But you're correct that very often uh, these sorts of decisions are very subjective. So, for example, something that I consider newsworthy, you might not and vice versa. If we were judges, uh, we could decide those cases differently. And certainly juries could decide them differently, too. Uh, and, and so that's why I think this is such, at least for me, uh, such an interesting area of um, of law, because it is so very subjective. Uh, and that subjectivity has the real ability then to um, to harm journalism by making journalists more timid in these areas, worried about invasion of privacy, worried about defamation um, and that sort of thing. Right. Now, when you were doing, you obviously did a lot of research for this book and you look back um, again, the Fourth Amendment does allude to privacy Uh, In fact, that's what Roe v. Wade, the decision was based on, even though all that is probably who knows where that is now. So in your research, you found out some interesting things about some uh, people who came before us, like Louis Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court justice. What 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 did you find out about him? So so interestingly, he he wrote um, he's very famous in uh, legal circles for being one of the co-authors of uh, a very famous law review article called The Right to Privacy. And in this um, in this article, uh, he argued that uh, media was out of control uh, and that technology was um, uh potentially very harmful to our privacy interests. So technology out of control, media out of control. Therefore, we need to take hold and find that there's this thing called the right to privacy that will protect all of us. 
That's well known. But what isn't so well known is that uh, a few years before that, he acted on behalf of the publisher of a book called Cape Cod Folks uh, that revealed an awful lot of personal information about individuals. Now, what's interesting there is that back in the early 1800s, uh, he'd argued that uh, there was no such thing as um, as privacy, so that the law didn't recognize privacy. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, that could very well be one of the reasons he agreed to co-write with his co-author, Sam Warren, the right to privacy. My research has shown that uh, Grover Cleveland had an awful lot to do with that article. Grover Cleveland had, as president and otherwise, some smarmy sort of background and very much wanted privacy uh, in his life. Uh, And so the law review article, The Right to Privacy, uh, helped protect him as president as well. And I think that, again, shows that that clash between the information we think that we are due, the information Uh that we might have the right to know versus this right to privacy. You know, it's funny because you talk about Grover Cleveland having a sort of smarmy side. And the same thing with Warren Harding. I guess we've had a few presidents who fit that description. And those are the ones who are fighting hardest to retain their privacy, to keep Snoopy reporters out of their private business. That's right. Who would have thought it? Right. But uh, Warren Harding, interestingly, had a real influence on journalism ethics. So when we think about journalism ethics and the sorts of decisions journalists make every day, deciding whether something is newsworthy or not, um, uh, Warren Harding had pushed back in the 1920s for for this collective uh, journalism code of ethics that would apply to journalists across the United States. He'd run a newspaper himself. He believed that ethics was important. He grabbed um, his fellow reporters and told them, you need to pass this, in effect, national ethics code. Uh, And journalists agreed um, and passed the same sort of code that he had in his newsroom. And at the very same time, he was having an affair with um, an extramarital affair and um, also just had a baby uh, with this woman, uh, a baby who then would remain secret uh, because, in in effect, arguably, um, because of journalism's ethics codes and this notion of of privacy, um, not legally necessarily, uh, but certainly um, um, ethically. It is a fascinating topic. And another part of it that I found really interesting deals with our right to privacy in public. And you talk about um, Jackie Kennedy being photographed with her family. And I guess there's a tightrope there that we have to walk. I I thought if you're out and about, you're fair game. People can take your picture. But yes or no? So, so. Intriguingly, again, when we think about um, the, the origins of the right to privacy and the connection to technology, if if we've been talking 10 years ago, I would have said you're absolutely correct that there is no privacy in public. Well, what's happened in the past 10 years is that we all suddenly have phones mm-hmm. uh, and those phones can record surreptitiously and otherwise uh, people out in public uh, and courts are increasingly concerned about this. 
Uh, and so therefore they found, for example, that even in a crowded restaurant, uh, when you can hear other people talking, when um, wait staff comes around the table, uh, that if someone records someone else in that scenario, that the person who is recorded uh, has a right to privacy, um, even in public in that sense. And there've been a number of other cases too, um, involving um, children who've been photographed in public, women who've been photographed in public, um, all because of this increasing uh, technology that allows um, us to record uh, things that we never were able to before. Um, and uh, sort of like in 1890, when they wrote the right to privacy, um, we have today um, uh, courts uh, deciding that, um, in fact, there is privacy uh, in public. Wow. And, and maybe this is related to, you know, I, I come from radio. I've been in radio my whole life. And I know from doing a big morning show in Los Angeles, when we'd call people, we had to get their permission before we put them on the air. But there are some states that only have one party permission necessary. So I guess in those states where as long as one side of the conversation and if you're part of it and you're recording it, then you're giving your permission. That doesn't work in this situation. Right, exactly. I mean, a number of, and again, many of these cases are so brand new. We're not 100% sure where courts are going to go with this. Mm -hmm. um, but just within the past year, I read a court decision that said that that law makes no difference wow. in, with regard to the sort of privacy that we're talking about. In other words, it, that's very relevant for police. Um, that's very relevant in government um, investigations. But if one person records another and then uploads that information to the Internet, courts have suggested that even in those states that have that so-called one party consent, right. um, it, there still can be an invasion of privacy wow. that it doesn't really affect. No, that's that's our new media world. It's, well, it's and um, how interesting that is when and then you think on the flip side, the Googles of the world and the, you know, Facebooks and how much information they take from us on a moment by moment basis. Not only those two, but any website you go to that puts cookies on your computer so they could see where you go. That's OK. So so again, uh, we're sort of in this new era of courts really coming to understand what's happening with technology. And so, again, if we had had this conversation five, 10 years ago, I would have said, of course, it's OK. Mm -hmm. uh, now, more recently, courts and legislatures have suggested that we need some reining in of that sort of information that's collected about us. And what I think is super interesting, and I would urge uh, everyone listening to this to try to do this, uh, California has a law that makes it possible for residents to request data from different websites. Uh -huh. And some websites uh, allow even non-resident, non-California residents to request data. Uh, and so you can make a request um, of uh, companies like Amazon, uh, and they will, in fact, in fact, they've done this with me. So hopefully they will continue. They'll reveal the data they have on you. And uh, what I found out from my research and collecting um, this data on me is that Amazon knows that I own a bulldog. Uh -huh. And so I never told Amazon I own a bulldog. Uh, and yet there it is in a folder marked pets, Amy Guida, pet, active, bulldog. 
Huh. Uh, so, wow. so who knows how they got it? I tried to figure out um, how they found out, but they wouldn't respond to my emails. So I may never know how they they found. That's that wild. But, the, you know, more and more information is coming out about the cookies that they put on you and how they track every click. And, you know, sometimes you could tell your spouse, I think we need a new dishwasher. And then all of a sudden you start seeing ads all over the Internet for dishwashers. You didn't put you didn't write it anywhere, but they know that's creepy. And this seems to happen more and more frequently. I feel bad for our law students who sit in in a lecture hall and who I'm sure are surfing the Internet at times when when I'm speaking. Uh, and uh, and those ads will then pop up and who knows what sorts of things they've been um, they've been searching for. And then, of course, everyone behind them can see that sort of information. Right. That's wild. You write about Section 230, which is a 1996 federal law that became privacy's downfall and then the catalyst for its rebirth. Was that part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996? That is the bane of my existence? Or was so that it, a it's, different? It's, a, it's the Communications Decency Act. So it's okay. uh, the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. Uh, and, and what it does is it protects websites from liability for information posted by others. And that's great. When people want to comment on um, a New York Times story, when they, the New York Times is not liable. Right. Uh, when they want to post something on Reddit, Reddit is not liable, even if it's privacy invading, even if it's defamatory. Um, but the problem is, is that some websites, of course, go far beyond that uh, and um, and have developed websites uh, that um, exist solely to, um, you know, to to invade privacy um, mm. in some way. So the so-called revenge porn websites, for example, those exist because of Section 230, because back in 1996, uh, Congress decided that websites should be protected in order to grow the Internet. Uh, and so some nefarious people um, out there uh, um, found that loophole, if you will, and um, and ran with it. Uh, and so that's why they're that's why I suggest that it was privacy's downfall because it allowed such websites to come about. And also the catalyst for privacy's rebirth, because Section 230 is why so um, these websites exist and what motivates people then to suggest that we need greater privacy, seeing the sorts of things that uh, that happen on those sorts of websites and otherwise. Right. But then you also have um, again, it's it, the Internet is in many ways still the Wild West. It's still in its infancy when you look at the, the big picture. Gawker. With what happened with Gawker, where they published intimate details and video, I believe, of a sexual encounter. And can you explain what happened there? Because they were taken down by a private person, not the law, right? Sure. Well, well, what happened was the private person then used the law hmm. to argue that the sex tape should be taken down. So what happened was the Gawker website uh, published a sex tape featuring Hulk Hogan, right. professional wrestler Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan asked Gawker to take it down. Gawker refused. Gawker believed that it had the ability to, to publish anything truthful. And it made that argument. Uh, and uh, and ultimately, Gawker was proved wrong for the reasons that we uh, we talked about earlier, because everyone does have a right to privacy uh, and particularly privacy in sexual information, in nudity, in medical information, in some financial information. That's always been the way it's 
been in the United States. Uh, and so therefore, a jury decided uh, that um, that uh, Gawker could be liable for publishing that truthful wow. information. And I think that that opened a lot of eyes to um, to privacy. And people were so shocked that um, that, you know, we knew about defamatory information. We knew we could be liable for publishing defamatory information. Right. What I think a lot of people didn't realize is that, no, you can also be liable for publishing the truth. private information. Wow. Exactly. Well, it's yeah. like doxing, which has become a new phenomenon, something, you know, that only the Internet made possible. But, you know, when the trolls jump on, they will dox you. They'll release all your personal information online. That's a crime, isn't it? Well, what what um, I um, uh, so so let me let me uh, uh, tell you the way the Supreme Court has um, decided related cases very recently. Okay, because of doxing, the Supreme Court has suggested that we have privacy even in our home addresses. And that's information that's been public for for a very long time. It's right. something that a lot of people, including journalists, rely on. Uh, and yet within the past year, there's a Supreme Court case that suggests that there's privacy in home addresses. And it's literally because of doxing. So the Supreme Court suggested that it that we needed to protect certain people who donated to certain charities the charities themselves on all sides of the aisle, if um, if that's a phrase, uh-huh. uh, uh, wanted privacy for their donors. Uh, and the Supreme Court then responded uh, in a way that protects then even um, um, home addresses um, because of concerns about doxing. But does this also then allow uh, the 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 dark money to flood into politics? It, it's the same premise. That's yeah. that's why that's that's exactly that clash that we are wow. um, that we're dealing with right now in yeah. law. That you know the importance of truth, um, how how key truthful information is to understanding democracy, to understanding our politicians, and yet at the same time recognizing that you know maybe even these politicians have some right to privacy, and where do we draw it? Do we draw it at nudity? Do we draw it at sexual information? Do we draw it at medical information? If we do draw it at medical information, does the president have less privacy in his medical information? And I would agree. Um, As a former journalist, I would absolutely agree. Um, But that is precisely then um, the sorts of things that judges are grappling with right now. Amy Geija, the book is Seek and Find the Tangled History of the Right to Privacy, a fascinating subject. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thank you for welcoming me into your ears. Until next time, I'll uh, leave you with Brad's familiar but necessary words. Good luck, world. I can't stand this